0: Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: So it is Havertz against Neto this
0: time. And Havertz scores. Three goals for Arsenal. And surely three points for the Gunners as well. He's a popular scorer, his teammates are all over him, patting him on the backs, tapping him on their head, encouraging the fans, now he's going over to take the adulation. We said it was a big moment, not in terms of the game, the game's won by Arsenal, but it's a big moment for this young man in his Arsenal career. And you hope now that this is an upward curve now for him.
1: Here's ArseCast Extra.
0: Hello and welcome to another ArseCast Extra as always. We're James from Gunner Blog. James,
1: goodly morning to you. Welcome back. Thank you, Andrew. Goodly morning to you too. How have you been? have you coped in my absence? I've missed you. i missed you. you know. Sure.
0: But yeah, I, I felt it was, it was okay for you to have some time away with your family and stuff like that. You I know? guess,
1: you know, we've been together so long, you and I, <laughs> that we grant each other these little freedoms within the relationship occasional occasional ones yeah sure
0: you seem it's to get more of them you get more of them than i do i think
1: it's <laughs> <is> true actually <laughs> that's not quite fair but there you go um, um yeah no good everything's to me back. good
0: yes it's good to have you back and obviously we are uh, in good shape after a, a good win over bournemouth at the weekend we'll get into all of that uh, in a moment but rather sort of unconventionally we are going to start with a question today Oh, and Alexandra Luke, who is at the RSD on Twitter, says, how do you get an earworm out of your head? The earworm (laughs) that, you know, is probably in everyone's head now, given the Kai Havertz song was in the intro, so.
1: Absolutely. Um, I mean, that's not one I want out of my head, really. I'm still uh, buzzing off that. What is it about Bournemouth that leads to kind of the explosion of these new chants.
0: I don't know. That was the Saliba one last year, wasn't it? And uh, this time around, this one really took off. I suppose the only way to get an earworm out of your head is with another earworm. Mm. You know. So how about maybe this one might work for you, Alexandra Luke?
1: think that'll help. something tells me not i listen i have a lot of affection for that song because it Mm. was the theme to the world cup in 2010 in south africa you reminded me of that
0: yeah you remind i was going i don't know that song and you were going yes you
1: do you do andrew i do Um, yeah and i was there on the ground in south africa i met shabalala in a petrol station It was the time of my life, (laughs) and uh, I was dancing away the nights to the sounds of Waka Waka by Shakira. So to hear it 13 years on, resurrected on the south coast of England, Mm. was momentous. I mean, I I do have a note about the song, which is that I really love it, but I feel like the lyric – so the lyric is (laughs) – um, 60 million down the drain, Kai Havertz scores again. I think he really needs to have scored more than once for that to truly work. Well, look, I, I guess you could say that. But, the, you know, this is a
0: song about Kai Havertz or for Kai Havertz, who, you know, has had a, a career before Arsenal, in fairness. So it's not a, true doesn't specify it had scored yeah. again for Arsenal.
1: He that's scored, correct. You know. He has scored again. Some feared he never would, I guess is the implication, <laughs> but he has. Um, and yet, listen, I, I, I say, what is it about Bournemouth? I mean, that's probably pretty easy to answer. It's a lovely trip to the sunny South Coast in a nice, old-fashioned stadium, uh, 1,300 fans who are pretty lucky uh, to have made the cut to get into that ground. A 3 p.m. kickoff, away from home, mm. few beers in, having the time of their lives.
0: There's a great video on the uh, Arsenal Twitter account uh, of the Arsenal fans singing that song. And there's a woman at the front <laughs> really dancing. And then there's a guy who sort of uh, dances in time with her. He's got his son on his shoulders and the two of the, the lady and the son do like a, she gives him like a double high five type thing in time to the music. Mm. Um, It looked like everyone was having a fantastic time there on Saturday afternoon. Yeah.
1: I have to say as much as they were chanting it consistently at Bournemouth, um, my sitting room, the sofa, mm. I also had to chant it consistently for about 20 minutes because I started doing it and my son, baby son, <laughs> turns out absolutely loves the sound of Wacka Um <laughs> and insisted that I carry it on. So it wasn't only within the stadium that that was an ongoing sound. Wow. Well, that's lovely. What a lovely thing. Um, <laughs> and is- and hopefully I have it Loved it as well. I'm
0: sure he did. I'm sure he did. I mean, the Arsenal songbook has, over the last couple of years, really expanded in a very kind of fun way, hasn't it? Mm Because there were, you know, obviously the classics, if you like, but whether it's, you know, tied to the the sort of uptick that the team has had and, you know, the the mood being good and people being a bit more creative. I mean, you'd love to know the genesis of these songs. Like, is there one guy – He's just sort of sitting there and then he starts singing it in the concourse one day and a couple more fans do it and then a couple more do it. Like, what is the, the genesis of these songs?
1: There's somebody, isn't there? There's there someone to at part heart of it.
0: it. It feels like there might just be a guy in a bunker somewhere and he just sort of releases these into the world.
1: I think you might be right. Yeah. Louis Dunford is is there in a bunker (laughs) penning these lyrics and passing out notes among the away fans. Uh, And so it takes hold. I mean, I genuinely, I think that's really interesting. I I assume that social media is pretty uh, integral to how they spread as well. Mm. Like That's how we all know the words to the Kai Havertz song and how we'll all be singing it Uh, You know, people will be singing it in France on Tuesday night and at the Emirates Stadium next Sunday, hopefully. But, um, yeah, it has got a lot more fun. You know, gone are the days when it was just Thierry Henry, Thierry Henry, Thierry Henry, Thierry (laughs) Thierry Henry. Henry. There is a bit more imagination (laughs) to the lyrics these days.
0: Uh, Yeah, fun times. I know all the words to the uh, William Saliba song, by the way. Just
1: Ah, well, there you go. I'm I'm well Um, up on my stuff. So it was a lovely. I mean, listen, the Saturday three pm portion of the weekend could not really have gone much better. It was excellent, wasn't it? The yeah.
0: Korean guy, he got a goal. That's
1: so perfect.
0: It. I mean, we talked about it on the preview podcast, myself and Lewis. I didn't. Right. Even, I wasn't aware of it, and Lewis said, "You've got to find what Pep Guardiola said there." So we dug up the tweet and listened to it. It was just like, oh. I mean, that really feels like something's going to come back and bite you in the arse. You know that what I mean? Is,
1: yes, the definition. I mean, yeah, he, he, he presented his arse to fate, and fate, <laughs> fate got bit right, it lustily.
0: He got right in there. He yeah. got right
1: up there. Um, so that was hilarious and unexpected. Mm. Uh, Manchester United continuing to be very bad, hilarious and considerably more expected. Yes. So, so yeah, an Arsenal, a stroll, really, at Bournemouth.
0: A stroll with a pretty strong team. Because pre game, in his press conference, Mikel Arteta was very, very circumspect about certain players being available. Declan Rice, no, the situation hasn't changed, hasn't trained. Trossard, hasn't trained. Saka, no, we don't know. You know, all uh, William Saliba, he's got a knock. Fabio Vieira, he couldn't play midweek. He's got a knock.
1: Yeah. You know, seven players he listed as potential yeah. unavailables.
0: And then Rice is in the team, and Sack is in the team, and Saliba's in the team, and Trossard is on the bench, and Vieira's on the bench. And, mm. uh, you know, there are, I guess, uh, there is some previous isn't there with Mikel Arteta playing his cards very close to his chest when it comes to who might be available uh, and who could be injured and who could be playing he does not want to give anything away uh, to to the opposition in any way but you know this this felt like an extreme example of of Arteta's um, how what's the word quietitude I don't know but you know he he He's reluctant yes. to give anything away.
1: This, this was sort of off the charts a bit. Discretion is maybe the word. He, he, yeah. I mean, I don't want to call him a liar, but he ain't <laughs> telling the truth in those press conferences. <laughs> Let's put it like that. Um, you know, because it works the other way as well. He sits there a few days after Gabriel Martinelli's done his hamstring, saying, oh, yeah, he might be available. Yeah. Uh, he's constantly pulling wool over people's eyes. And um, basically, we can't trust him. <laughs> that, that, that is my conclusion when he talks about injuries.
0: Yeah, I think that's important to uh, clarify that, you know, when he talks about injuries, we definitely can't trust a <laughs> word he says. We're not casting shade on everything that Mikel Arteta says. You know, there are moments when perhaps he is telling the truth along the way. We don't know.
1: He is perhaps. <laughs> but I would say that I do think in press conferences, uh, he is very sort of flexible. With the truth, I think. I think as he matures as a manager, more and more he is using those press conferences to his own ends, mm. his own devices. Um, and genuinely, with the injury news, I wonder if we're at the point where, like, as reporters, we have to say instead of saying Arsenal have seven injury doubts, maybe we have to start saying, "Well, Mikel Arteta says <laughs> Arsenal have seven injury doubts." <laughs> yes. Um, But to be honest, it's quite difficult for us to discern whether or not that is the truth. Because everything he says about fitness, I think we as fans should take with um, a hefty spoonful of salt.
0: Mm,
1: I think that's fair.
0: I think that's fair.
1: And fair play to him. That's his prerogative, right?
0: Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, if we're talking marginal gains, I, I mean, look, whether Arsenal injury news greatly affects the preparation or the decision-making of the opposition manager, I'm not 100% sure. But if if Arteta feels like it does, or at least gives him sort of uh, some sense of control over something he can't control, I don't know if
1: it's that or whatever, but... uh, Well, if it gives him a 1% more -hmm. chance on match day, I honestly think that this is a season where some of the changes Arteta is making, some of the things he's doing are tiny, tiny, tiny gains. But I think that that's sort of the business we're in now. We're looking for those tiny gains Mm. in order to get us over the line. Um, So, yeah, it was good news, though, when the team lineups came out.
0: It was. And we had a a fairly early breakthrough. Um, Oh, can I play you this, by the way? Do I have it here? I thought this was really funny. Uh, okay. Let me see. Uh, because I was watching on TV here. Um, I think I was watching Irish TV as well. Did you hear Gary Breen then talk about Eddie and Um Very for, possible. Very early in the game, they were talking about like um, whether Declan Rice could be the difference maker for Arsenal, and this is what he said. I think there's probably a missing piece in terms of an elite number nine
1: from Little Eddie, as he's known affectionately. Little Eddie, as he's known
0: affectionately. I, love, I swear
1: to God. I love. I've never, can I say? <laughs> yeah. I have never heard anyone refer to him as Little Eddie. Until now. No. Until now. As he's known Eddie. affectionately by me and me alone. Yeah. <laughs> uh, was that Gary Breen? I tuned in just after kickoff, So I, it was one of those games where I spent the entire 90 minutes wondering who it was on yeah. co-commentary. In my head, I imagined it was Jolian Lescott. That was my guess.
0: Right. No, but it was Gary, indeed, Breen.
1: Indeed Gary Breen. Indeed, here Gary Breen.
0: Yeah, it was Gary Breen, um, who I believe spent some time at Arsenal as a young player. And he, he seems to have... Really, yeah, he has He has a, a bit of affection for us in terms of how he talks about the team and how he you talks about what's off, going as on. He, as he affectionately calls <laughs> us. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's who it was, but uh it, it was quite an an interesting opening to the game because you know Bournemouth under this new manager are trying to do things a bit differently, and I think Arsenal got on top pretty quickly in terms of possession and all the rest of it. I think the goal was maybe fifteen sixteen minutes in, something like that, yeah, little Eddie picked it up and drove well into into midfield and you know from there I think it was Saka to Odegaard, Odegaard the cross to Jesus and Bakaio Saka poacher extraordinaire there he was uh, to mop up after the header came back in off the post.
1: Yeah, I don't I don't know if I don't know quite what Jesus intended at the back post, but I liked that he offered the threat there. He had a chance against Spurs from a similar position that actually produced a really good save from Vicario. Um, And yeah, there he was, comes back off the post and Saka's there. And all I can do really is marvel at Saka's productivity. You know, even in a season where I've seen people saying, is he at his best? Has he hit top form? Uh, I think that's four goals in the Premier League, two assists in seven appearances. I mean the the numbers don't the numbers are amazing to be honest.
0: No they they absolutely are. They absolutely are. 9 games in total for Arsenal this season including the community shield, 5 goals and 4 assists in <laughs> in those games. So Very decent. It's you know a goal contribution every single game basically.
1: Yeah, and I'm just I'm looking at his page on who scored and it's got European championships with England, 5 appearances, 4 goals, 1 assist. Um Wow. He's not doing too badly. I mean, you know, this may be the season where, I mean, his numbers last year were very, very good in terms of goals and assists. But if he carries Mm. on like this, he is going to surpass them.
0: It's possible. And, you know, I think we're, we're verging into the sort of territory where only the very best players can get near. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, they, you, you look at a player and it becomes sort of par for the course that they do something in every game or they score in every game or their average over the course of a season is, is really big. And I don't want to, you know, jinx anything or anything like that. But, you know, Saka's just turned 22 and we are very close to him, you know, venturing into that, that area where only the very, very best players can go. And it's so exciting. You know, it really
1: is. I agree, and I and I, you know, I tweeted about his um, his his numbers. I think at that point in time, only Son and Haaland had more goals in the Premier League. And uh, I've got to say, someone came back to me, a guy called ASD uh, on Twitter, and he said, "All great players have a sense of inevitability when it comes to goals and assists, regardless of how they're playing." And I think there's something to that. You know, mm. even when Saka is not at his absolute electric. And I don't think he was poor by any means at Bournemouth, but even when he's not, you know, doing everything that we demand of him in every aspect of his game, there is that sense of inevitability now. You know, he does get on the score sheet. He does make goals. He always makes things happen. And he's so often the guy who finds the breakthrough for Arsenal. So yeah, very, very encouraging what he's doing at this early stage of the season, especially when you can see still in his game, little bits of room for improvement here and there.
0: Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, it's just uh it's amazing to watch and to see this uh, young man develop the way he has uh, at this club is is just so good. Uh you know, there's it's just I suppose redundant to say you love watching Bakayo Saka play football, but I love watching Bakayo Saka play football because you know that that productivity as you said that end product that he can bring in pretty much any game is just it's remarkable, and look, I'll, I'll come back to Saka a bit later on because we did have some questions about substitutions and and looking after him a bit. So I want to do that in yeah in maybe the second part of the show. But you know, I think that I think those two things are linked, right? And we'll circle back around to this a, a, a bit later on. Trying to think of what else went on in that first half. There was a very good shot from Zinchenko. I think uh, Jesus had a chance. Um, and then towards the end of the half, we get uh, the penalty mm-hmm. ball from Zinchenko into Little Eddie, and he gets taken down um, in stonewall penalty. Just a really sharp bit of movement from Nkedia who's who's actually his turn of pace and how quick he is. I think he he's a bit deceptive in that regard, because I don't think you would say Eddie Nkedia is like... Theo Walcott lightning quick or anything like that but there have been a couple of occasions in the last week or so where his pace over the first four or five yards has been really evident
1: yeah I agree Um, he has looked quite sharp in a few instances and I thought he did at Bournemouth on a few occasions I thought this was a a pretty good game for Eddie although he didn't get on the score sheet I thought he ran the line very well and worked very hard. Some good combination play with Zinchenko, as you mentioned in the build-up to this penalty. Um, he's not quite as quick as he thinks he is. I am worried that one of these days he is going to go through one of, one of these goalkeepers and get himself <laughs> sent off.
0: Um, well, I mean, he tried his best against Spurs, didn't he? So, <laughs>
1: Yeah. It's a fine line he treads because we have seen him nick balls in mm-hmm. those occasions. Um, but if you get it wrong, uh, let me tell you, when they slow that down and show a still of it, to a referee through VAR it could look pretty bad so he's, he's got to watch his step a little bit there um, Assuming the if, uh, the VAR guy is paying attention Yeah, yeah exactly exactly um, but this was a stonewall penalty uh, Max Ahrens who used to be linked with Arsenal a lot as far as I recall Yeah, um, making a, a bit of a silly tackle and I have to say I thought Arsenal were incredibly good it was a very dominant controlled performance but Bournemouth will really look at some of the goals they conceded and and regard them as very sloppy indeed And, and this was one.
0: I agree I agree I thought what was interesting about this Arsenal performance was that look I don't think we took the game for granted or anything like that I think we worked hard defensively we were just so well organized Bournemouth couldn't find any way to get through really in our final third and I think that is down to them being a bit poor no question but I think also the quality of the defending from Saliba from Gabriel from Ben White uh, and Zinchenko actually who doesn't you know normally tick uh, all the defensive boxes that you might like but I think he made more tackles than any other Arsenal player in this game so there's a lot to be said for the way we did it and uh, I don't want to say we didn't have to get out of third gear but I felt like we could always go up a bit in this one no
1: yeah and Zinchenko, I thought was excellent on the day. Um I think he had the most ball recoveries. I think even though he left the field quite early, I think he might have led the some of the team's passing stats. I remember looking about an hour in, and he had the most completed passes in the final third of any player on the pitch. Mm. Um, you know, we, we know how important he can be to what we do in possession. I thought he was very, very good and played his part winning the penalty, and it was uh now, hang on, I've lost track. It was Martin Odegaard, wasn't it, who stepped up for this one? It was,
0: yeah. Uh, just one other stat that I thought was quite good is, is David Raya made more passes than 10 of uh, 11, 10 of Bournemouth's 11 starters. So, mm, well, you you know, know, so that just shows you the, the control that we had on, on this one. But yeah, Martin Odegaard, it looked like Saka was going to take it. Then Odegaard took it, rolled it in. I feel very confident with Odegaard from the spot.
1: So do I. I think he's got lovely technique looks very very calm in those situations um and it was a great penalty um and it's interesting you mentioned like Bournemouth didn't offer a great deal going forward I think that's true but there were a couple of incidents just before half time one where uh Gabrielle made an excellent block on billing in the penalty area um and then I think there was a shot that got away from Christie. Mm. David Raya sort of plunged low to his left and not only saved it but held it, which was, I think, mm. a really good piece of goalkeeping. You know, it would have been—I don't think there would have been much blame attributed to him if he'd palmed that out, and there were a few Bournemouth players waiting potentially to tap that in. Mm. But it was a really nice take to keep and hold it, and just keeping that two-goal advantage to half time underlined the control and put us in a very comfortable position.
0: It did put us in a comfortable position, but you know, uh, I—you know—was thinking at halftime, we've been here before.
1: 2-0 up. 2-0. Yeah, of course.
0: It's a, uh, it's a dangerous scoreline. The most dangerous scoreline in football. Certainly the most <laughs> dangerous scoreline if you're Arsenal because we have been in this, you know, been there, done that, worn that T-shirt a few too many times where 2-0 and a game that you're in control of suddenly changes in a moment. You mm-hmm. don't have the the ruthlessness or, or whatever it is to get that third goal, which basically kills a game. So... I was very happy at half time. I wasn't particularly concerned about Bournemouth. I think I said to uh, to Andrew Allen like it would be good to get a, you know, third goal pretty quickly into the second half and you can kill the game and and, you know, make things a bit more comfortable for yourself. And thankfully that's pretty much what we did. Um I have to say I laughed a lot at the Bournemouth guy protesting his innocence over this one when he slid in on Odegaard and took him out. Like, I don't know how you can get up from that and claim to the referee that, it, that it's not a penalty.
1: No, I think it was Ryan Christie. Yeah, um, that's who it was. Yeah, yeah. Another player who was very briefly linked with Arsenal in the press when he was at Celtic. Um, mm. But uh, yeah, clumsy is perhaps <laughs> the best way to describe that challenge. A, a, a forwards challenge. Um, even though he's a midfielder. I mean, Martin Odegaard, I don't know if he saw it coming. He took that little touch. But as soon as the player came into him like that, Mm. he must have been like, oh, well, that's... Very Thank you. you, yes. Yeah. <laughs> we'll take that penalty, yeah. if that's
0: okay. We'll take that penalty. And then it was like, oh, well, who's going to take it? Is it going to be Odegaard or will he give this one to Saka just to a switch things up a bit, you know, for the goalkeeper, the old switcheroo uh, goalkeeper. I think Gabriel coming.
1: Jesus was sniffing around it as well. Um,
0: I Yeah, but that's what I thought when I saw Odegaard and Jesus talking and I assumed maybe that they were going to give the penalty to Jesus. Maybe he felt confident. Maybe he wanted it. Maybe he wanted to, to score a goal. And then, of course,
1: they gave the ball to Kai Havertz. Yes. What? And there was a big cheer from the away end as soon as they did that.
0: I mean, I have to say, I've never been more invested in a player scoring a penalty of, I won't say such little consequence, because that's not fair and it's not right. It's still... An important goal, as I just said, it's important to make it 3-0 because, you know, you don't want to get pegged back and, and all the rest of it. But it's not like a World Cup final goal, but I I was just so, so desperate for him to score because, you know, he, he must have had all that running through his mind as well. Like, okay, I've been here, a bit of criticism, things haven't gone great, this could be a moment, can make it 3-0, but what if I miss? What if it's 2-0 and they break up the other end and score a goal? And then I get a second yellow card. Oh, my God. You know, I'm sure there were all of those thoughts swirling around in his head. But it was a a very decisive penalty. And I think something that he so obviously needed. Um, Really lovely to see him score that. And we can talk about the, the other aspects of it in a sec.
1: Yeah, it was a really good penalty. It was not dissimilar to Martin Odegaard's really. Um mm. he he really gave a pretty intense look at the bottom right-hand corner, gave a little skip and then put it in the bottom left. Um and Neto absolutely bought it. So really nice moment. He he's you know, he's a very accomplished technical player, so we shouldn't be too surprised that he can tuck away a penalty kick. I think you know, the real sort of matter at hand here is A, the kind of camaraderie and team spirit that was demonstrated to give him that opportunity and B, what it may potentially mean for him moving forward.
0: Yeah, I mean, Arteta was full of praise for uh, the players afterwards because that was a decision that they made on the pitch. It's probably not a decision that, you know, they didn't give him the first penalty, right? No. Um, So this was something that they came up with off the cuff I have to say I really like it, to be honest. I know there's some people who would say, well, you should have your penalty taker, your penalty taker should take the penalties, and that's it. But there are other things to consider. And I, what, it, what it showed to me as well was that, I think, did Arteta say there's external noise or external something, and internally, you know, it's, it's a different situation. But what it showed to me was that these guys trust Havertz as a player They trust him, you know, technically to score the penalty. And they really were aware of how much he as a person and a player needed something to sort of widen that connection with the fan base a little bit.
1: Yes, I agree. Because, you know, giving him a penalty, (laughs) there's kind of two sides to that. As you alluded to, you know, in the one hand, they're giving him an opportunity to get off the mark for Arsenal. And, you know, that that could be a big moment for him. But it's also a bit of a pressurised situation because the stakes are so high if he misses it. Mm. And he knows, he will be well aware of what the reaction to that would be, and you know, what that would mean for his perception externally, if not internally. Um, but they did show that faith. They did show that trust. You know, Martin Odegaard handing him the ball and saying, Kai we think you're the man to take this, Mm. that may have just been what he needed. Um, And I guess we'll find out in the coming weeks how helpful it's been to him. But it was a nice moment and I thought really good leadership by Odegaard and the other senior players in the group. And um, a lovely moment for Havertz. I, I I found it interesting, you know, the celebration, the other players were so happy for him and the fans were so happy and he was relieved. And I think he was a little bit, um, embarrassed isn't quite the right word, but, you know, a little bit shy almost. And I found that an interesting insight into him as a person and as a character. And maybe there is just that part of him that's, you know, a little bit more reserved or within himself.
0: Maybe, but, I, you know, perhaps it's, uh, self-aware as yeah. well, you know, in that like he scored a penalty against Bournemouth to make it three 0 He's not going to go and run and do a knee slide and all the rest yeah. of it. And you know, he's probably aware that you know this, you know the 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 first part of his Arsenal career maybe hasn't gone as well as he would like or or anyone would like, right? Mm-hmm. So he's not going to sort of milk a moment in a like over egg the pudding, if you like. You know, he I think he put something on Twitter or Instagram or something like that, say thanks for the support or whatever. But, you know, he didn't do an interview afterwards. He didn't, uh, you know, put himself front and center. And I think it's there's probably just an element of self-awareness with that too. I think you're probably right that he might be a bit more of an introvert than some of the other players in this team, but I think he's, you know, he's also intelligent and, um, you know, didn't want to be accused of, you you can't sort of just run around sticking your fingers up,
1: yeah, I fucking scored at last. Fuck you. You know Well, the you, last thing we want is the celebration police. You uh, know. <laughs> the sirens outside the Vitality Stadium coming for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um but yeah, I think you're right. I think there is a self awareness. And even at full time, you know, he kind of had to be pushed to the fore by uh Martin Odegaard yeah. to take the, the crown to love. Um But it, let's see. Let's see. I think also contained within his responses, the knowledge that this alone is not correct enough. You yeah, know. exactly. It's the start of something. Yes.
0: Yes. I think that's exactly right as well. So, uh, but look it's just a lovely moment. And, and uh, what's nice about things like that is that they're unexpected. You know, you don't normally get two penalties in a game and then you don't normally have the opportunity to hand a player, Who's maybe lacking a bit of confidence? The thing that can spark him back into life, and hopefully, you know, that's what it does. And then I think that that song um, and being three nil up and being in the sunshine and all the rest of it, it just sort of played into you know the reaction and, and everything else from that goal. It was just just really nice. Yeah, and killed the
1: game as well.
0: Uh huh. Yep, it really did. And we made some changes. Zinchenko. Who went off? Zinchenko and... Uh, Was it Rice, maybe? Uh, No, Rice went off a bit later, I think. Let's have a look. Um, Nelson and Tomi came on. Ah, so if it was Nelson, was Uh, it Eddie? Eddie. Little Eddie. Little Eddie. Little Eddie. He went off... um, and uh, then who came on? Well, Saka had to go off because he got a kick.
1: Well, blocking yes. that shot. He Saka pointedly didn't go off first. No. Um, well, they, this will come to
0: in part two. Okay. So he got that kick and then he did get off uh, or was taken off. Vieira came on for him. Um, then
1: Jorginho and Smith Rowe came off. Yeah, Smith-Rowe.
0: and Smith Rowe, you know, when we talk about players who maybe have lacked a bit of confidence, he talked about that last week after making his first start in, in such a long time in the in the um, the EFL Cup game. He came on and had two good chances, I mean, two very good saves as well. I think probably the first one he didn't quite hit with the kind of conviction he would have liked. And Neto yeah. made a save. Um the second one, I don't think he could have called it any sweeter and it's a very, very good save by the goalkeeper. But encouraging from Smith-Rowe to get into those positions and, you know, even though he was only on the pitch for 10 or 15 minutes all told, you know, to have two very good chances. I know there's a question of game state as well in that, but, you know, that that's another little uh, another little bit um, that he can put in his tank.
1: Definitely. It's another step along the road. And uh, I thought he looked really sharp, as sharp as he has for some time. Um I didn't see the entirety of the Brentford game. I just saw clips, but, you know, he certainly had his moments during it um, and came very, very close to getting the goal here. And let's not forget, that was something he did brilliantly in a little spell a while ago, come off the bench and provide a threat and be a guy who could get the extra goal in these games. Um, I mean, I think they said in the commentary that he's not scored in the league since... Spring of 22, maybe. So Mm. well over a year. Uh, I know he's missed a lot through injury, but um, I think he's itching to to put that to rest. Well, yeah. Well, I can't
0: remember what that goal was. It would have been towards the the tail end of that season where we ended up finishing fifth, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, So let's not go back and relive any of that. Um, There was another
1: goal, though, Andrew. There
0: was another goal. Beautiful Ben White getting his
1: head on, uh, was it Odegaard? I think it was Odegaard, wasn't it? Of course, yeah, lovely lofted pass. Pretty ragged defending, I think, from Mm. Bournemouth, but a really good header.
0: It was, it was. There was a VAR check and, uh, you know, I don't know why it took so long because it was pretty obviously onside and a a nice way to ice the cake, if you will. I think that's a way of describing that goal.
1: Yeah, definitely. And Ben White doesn't get too many, you know, and I think he's got the ability. Um, So, yeah, really nice moment for him. And a very, very, very emphatic victory. You know, there was a lot of talk pre-game of Bournemouth having this aggressive playing style and how would Arsenal manage it? Well, they just completely dominated. They were so composed. You spoke about the passes at the back, the goalkeeper Mm. being involved with that. This was a very um, mature, confident performance from Arsenal.
0: Completely agree. Sort of exactly the business-like approach to games like this that you need right yeah um so yeah i think there's a a lot of a lot of encouragement to be taken from it um and you know we've got football now tomorrow night of course uh, against lawns and uh, i'll be curious to see what sort of team he puts out there um whether or not the Man City game influences this game, I'm not so sure. It might be the Bournemouth game that has more influence on the team selection for tomorrow night, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's, listen, we joke about Arteta fibbing in press conferences, but there are players who are you know, carrying little knocks and niggles. I mean, that's the reality of any season. Yeah. Um, but we're now getting into a pretty intense period with some big games – In this month, we're into October now. You know, we've got Champions League games, we've got Man City, we've got uh, Chelsea in a few weeks' time. I know they're not playing great at the moment, but always a big game. Mm. Uh, So there is a lot for Arteta to consider and juggle and weigh up. Um, So I'm intrigued to see what he does on Tuesday. You know, he's spoken about having depth, having variety in the squad, having two players for every position. yeah, he's got an opportunity to mix it up a little bit. I don't expect massive changes. I don't think it'll be anything like the Brentford team, for example, in the Carabao no. Cup. But there are one or two who you might think, could we hold them back for Sunday and Man City? Which just feels like a really important game Um not even just like on its own merits but i think it's actually a really important game almost in the development of this squad mm. you know sooner or later we need to win one of these league games against man city and i just have the feeling that this this would be as as good a time as any to have a real chance of doing it
0: yeah i agree we can talk about that i suppose a, b- a bit more during the week um like there is champions league first and then all eyes on all eyes on man city I mean the the other big bit of stuff this weekend was was what happened in the Liverpool game. Um how do you view how this latest incident on top of previous ones some of which we have been involved in on top of that Mike Dean revelation which you know still I'm sort of astounded at how quickly that that sort of got brushed under the carpet. How do you feel like this Impacts trust in the referees and the officiating, and also, as uh, Liverpool's statement uh, put out, you know the the sporting integrity of the Premier League, and they have they've hinted at taking things further. Quite what form that might take, we uh, we'll have to wait and see. But uh, how do you view what happened there?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I, I thought their statement, you know, was very strong. But I'm, I'm a little bit dubious about how they can take it any further. Yeah. Um, I kind of wonder if that was as much for their own fans, just to say, "Look, we're not happy about this, and we're going to make that very plain." But I, I don't really know what what. <laughs> nothing can make up for the points, you know, um, as that we they know. may have gained, as we know ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, the incident itself—it was a very strange game. I thought the officiating throughout was pretty poor. Um, Yes. uh, Very odd, the offside goal. I was watching it in real time. I thought it looked onside in real time. I thought it looked onside in the replay. I was confused when no lines appeared on the screen Um, and a little bit confused at how easily I was watching through Sky in England and how easily the commentators sort of accepted that it was uh offside. I mean I guess, you know, theoretically offside is mm. right or wrong. It's it's clear, but the actual mistake that was made is mm, hard to explain. <laughs> well can uh, I
0: I'll read out where um Dale Johnson, the fireman, yeah. uh waiting in the sky. Anyway, he does his stuff on ESPN, as we know, and I'll read out what he says uh, is The issue, Um, Darren England somehow now thinks he's checking a goal rather than a disallowed goal. If he was confirming an overturn, he would lock in the offside lines, but as he now thinks the on-field decision is goal, there's no prerequisite to do so when the onside is an obvious one. England cleared the review so quickly and with such confidence, he didn't even get the opinion of the assistant VAR. Perhaps that was the issue with such a regulation onside decision. He thought he should wrap it up and said, check complete. Um... He also says, semi-automated offside technology, which Premier League clubs chose not to introduce this season, would have made no difference in this situation because the error is the communication with the referee. England correctly identified that Diaz was offside. And then uh, what happened next came so fast, there was no time to react within protocol. Just two seconds after VAR has said check complete, Spurs took the free kick, which creates a cutoff point. Nothing can be reviewed after a restart. This doesn't apply to penalties um and seven seconds later the VAR team realized what happened panic set in but they decided they couldn't go against protocol and they just let play continue so that's the explanation that I presume has been given to him
1: I mean Andrew I almost don't want to patronize our listeners by telling them all the reasons that that's completely crazy um, no,
0: I, I think I, I, I was just reading it out. No, no, no.
1: I, I yeah, I, I, I understand. But like, you know, we can all point out all the holes in that. Yeah, um, it, it's so ludicrous. You know, what's the point in having an assistant VAR present if you're not consulting them? Why on earth did the VAR believe that? a goal had been awarded. I mean, it was very, very clear from the pitchers, from the crowd reaction, the ironic cheers of the home fans. It had been flagged for offside from Diaz's muted reaction Mm. to the ball hitting the net. It couldn't have been more clear. Uh, Equally, you know, what do you mean you can't review it once the ball is back in play? How many times have you seen a free kick taken on a pitch and the referee goes, no, hang on, we're not ready. You've taken that too quickly. Bring it back, and we'll yeah. restart. Yeah, that happens in every single match. So why can the same not be applied to the video? It's it's a terrible, terrible mistake. Um, I, I think I'm right in saying that the, the official in question had been working elsewhere in the world a, a couple of days earlier. So maybe there are question marks over his concentration or fatigue or God knows. But it's a huge error deeply embarrassing for the premier league and for the pgmol um i I don't really know what else to say about it
0: the official in question was working in the uae yes which is you know um fueling some conspiracy theories given you know who owns manchester
1: city and all the rest of it i mean you asked the right question which is what does this do to erode trust and i think (sighs) So I'm not someone who believes there is kind of active corruption in the Premier League. I believe there's active incompetence, but I don't believe there's active corruption. Mm. That's my personal take. But there are a lot of people who are beginning to feel differently. And I think the society in which we live now is one that is quite fertile for conspiracy theory, essentially. And I think sure. we see that all across society. And the problem you have is that when you make mistakes of this gravity that seemingly defy logic, it's, you know, you're, you're chucking fertilizer on those conspiracy theories. Absolutely, especially when your explanation
0: doesn't make a great deal of sense yeah. or is far from believable, you know. And the thing about it is, you know, the it was quite funny to see... The broadcasters tie themselves in knots on Saturday around this because for most of this season, they have been doing, I won't say subtle, but they've been doing some pretty obvious PR work for Howard Webb and the PGMOL you know, decisions over time-wasting. Oh, now that's a yellow card as soon as you gesture for a yellow card. This is what the referees are are on about. Uh, You know, we want to see less time-wasting, so we're going to add more time on. But on top of that, we're also going to give players yellow cards uh, or even red cards in the case of Tomiyasu, you know. And all the time they've been they've been yeah this is the way to go yeah this is the sort of refereeing we need etc cetera, etc cetera. you know ignoring the fact that this is kind of low level stuff nobody wants time wasting but it has always been within the uh within the referee's discretion to add time on at the end of the game this is you know they go heavy on these sort of small things and then something big like this happens and it's just it's just absurd and i think the 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 standard of Howard Webb is worse than Mike Riley. You know, his track record is worse than that of Mike Riley. That's
1: it's not been a good start. That's that
0: not sure. good. And I think this latest uh, incident has completely undermined what little faith there was because any football fan is going to look at that and think, well, that could happen to my team. Why couldn't it happen to my team? And I'm pretty sure every football fan of every Premier League club and beyond can sit there or sit here this morning and go, remember that decision? Remember that decision? Remember that thing? What, you know, and they will have questions and rightly so. Um, I think you're right. I think it's far more to do with incompetence than it is corruption. But I do understand why people's minds go in that direction.
1: Look, maybe Howard Webb is going to do a good job in the fullness of time. I think what's clear is that he has inherited. It's a bit like Michel Arteta coming into Arsenal and having to work with, you know, <clears throat> the Kalasanaches and Mustafis of the world. And that is kind of the <laughs> refereeing group that he's inherited. And what is really required is a kind of root and branch review of how we develop officials um, to improve the general standard because I'm not a fan of the technology. Like I was quite opposed to the introduction of video, Um, but it's here now and it's here to stay. And uh, you can't row back from this point. And and it is the application of it. Um, If we accept that it's here and it's here to stay, it has to be applied better. And that comes down to Mm. the the standard of the officials. Um, I think there's sort of a fundamental thing here where there's kind of so I, I you know i'm um i am a, a a writer and an actor as well and in I, I, this feels like a big deviation but it will go somewhere i hope and in that industry um there's been a lot of in the news recently about strikes and a big point of contention has been sort of the use of technology within those industries Mm. so for example ai you know can ai um be used to write scripts can you use ai to uh recreate an actor's likeness and use that beyond their death or beyond their paid involvement in a movie and you know the fight there has been about people protecting their livelihoods and i think i I almost wonder with the officiating body is there kind of a similar thing occurring where you've got these guys, you've got a generation of referees who essentially feel that the technology places their livelihood under threat and therefore are kind of resistant fundamentally to its effective use. And I do wonder if that tension at play is what's creating some of these problems that we're observing on the pitch. I mean, Maybe so, that's a reach. I don't know. I, yeah,
0: like use it so badly, people will say get rid of it.
1: Uh, yeah, and I'm not even saying it's conscious. no. I know. I know. I know I, what I, you I, mean. Yeah. I'm just saying that they they don't want the technology to be the solution because it makes more jobs though. I mean, it makes more jobs for
0: officials. Yeah, true. You know, there are there are more opportunities, I guess, because you require two vars in every game and like. Previous to that, you know, maybe being a, a var isn't the um, the life's ambition of many officials. But yeah, it's just
1: it, it, yeah. It, at the moment, what what I dislike most is just that I feel like the the benefit of VAR was supposed to be in some ways that it would kind of diminish or eradicate the amount of conversations we had to have about officials and decisions. Eradicate is unrealistic, but certainly reduce. But I think because of VAR and its application and its kind of failure to deliver um, what many hoped for, I think we end up having almost more bigger chats about oh, it. Yeah, exactly.
0: It's gone completely the other way. Yeah. The old, What's the old saying about the referee? You know, a good referee is a referee you don't notice or whatever it is. Yeah.
1: But and I think the broadcasters have a, a responsibility. No, I, I agree. Well. I was just
0: going to say that because they get the Peter Waltons on, they get Mike Dean on, you know, to, you know, to focus on these incidents and it becomes increasingly just part and parcel of the coverage. So it becomes almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, there's a guy literally whose main job as a football writer is to go through all of our, uh, decisions over the course of a weekend mm-hmm. I mean that's where we are with this now we're in a we're in a world where this is just now firmly embedded into football, football culture, and all the rest of it I don't see that there's any way of going back. The only solution that I see is to improve standards and I think what what really what frustrates me is that like human error is part and parcel of life in football, whether you're a referee a player, a manager, you know, just in every part of human life, human error is is there, right? But it's about how you respond to it. Do you learn from it? Uh, can you make things better? You make a mistake and you go, okay, I won't do that again. But it just seems with the PGMOL and these referees that there is a sort of non, never ending um, litany of mistakes and they don't seem to be. Learning, They don't seem to be getting better. Standards do not seem to be improving above and beyond the issuing of fairly meaningless, hollow statements, admitting that mistakes have been made. Maybe that's a step in the right direction, but it doesn't feel like we're going anywhere fast in terms of the standards uh, improving based on the mistakes that these guys are making.
1: No, but maybe... This people probably won't like this, but maybe it's not realistic for it to be fast. You know, to continue the analogy of a manager inheriting a poor squad, maybe that turnover, maybe that evolution will take time. You Mm -hmm. know, ultimately, they've got the pool of refs they've got. And I, I honestly think that this is something that is almost a generational issue that, you know, we need a new breed of referee almost who are au fait and at home and. At ease with technology. This technology. Yeah, yeah, I do think that.
0: All right. Well, look, um, like you said, a busy weekend in the uh, Premier League. The Saturday three PMs were um, were very good to us. That game obviously finished in a filthy, disgusting manner. Um, but we'll talk about. I mean, more. to be fair, yeah. as
1: much as the, the VAR was a factor, if Joel Matip hadn't booted the ball into his own top corner ten seconds for the end of time, mm. that also would have been good. Human error Human I error guess.
0: Yeah. Yeah mad out PGMOL <laughs> out All of it We'll talk more about the Premier League In our uh, Premier League podcast On Patreon Called The 30 We'll have that for you today Even though there is a game uh, Later on tonight uh, For now We'll take a little break We'll come back with your questions And more in part two Right after this Welcome back to part two of the ArsCast Extra. This is when we answer questions that you send to us on Twitter, at Gunnarblog and at Arseblog, also on the Arsblog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you are an Arsblog member on Patreon. As a welcoming back present, James, you can go first.
1: Thank you. Well, I, I, I <laughs> did like this question, um, which was from Gray, who's that Wiggle that, who asked me, are you considering having another child as competition for Rocky? If not, does he risk getting complacent? (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, The answer is a firm no at this precise point in time. But, you know, these are the fogging standards, so maybe there will have to be another chance. (laughs) Uh, Mark O'Connor said, Goodly morning. Emils Smith Rowe appeared crestfallen at the final whistle, despite a decent cameo. Do you think this was just down to the missed chances? Or could the public support by team and supporters of Kai have left him feeling roots back to the first 11 are all but Gone. Did you see this clip? I did see the clip. Yeah, he looked
0: really, really upset, I think. And
1: Down, yeah. and had to be kind of consoled by teammates.
0: Yeah, Zinchenko, like Zinchenko's way of consoling him was
1: whacking him on the back. Sure. Um It's an unconventional leadership style.
0: Yeah. I like this one actually from Brock Strongo on the Discord. Do you think the amount of head-slapping Havertz received after scoring the penalty on Saturday has been putting him off scoring goals up to this point? I think that's probably probably true. Um, I think he's just, you know, like any player who gets into a position to score a goal in a football match, he's unhappy and upset that he didn't take those chances.
1: Mm. I think um, you'll feel the first one he should have scored. Yes,
0: I think so. I think really so.
1: nice approach play from Jesus, and then a brilliant touch from Reese Nelson just to get it through to him, I think.
0: Actually, you know, without wanting to belabor the point about referees, and we won 4-0, and I don't need to uh, go on and on about this, but I thought Bournemouth got away with some stuff in this game. Mm. There are a couple of tackles. You know, that one, I don't think uh, the guy, was it Sanesi who was just basically wrestling Jesus?
1: Did he even get booked? I don't know. It was a good advantage, I guess. It was a good advantage,
0: on. but it's still a very obvious foul.
1: Yeah. And he didn't bring it back. Um, but, uh, yes, as for as for Emil Smith-Rowe, I think he was just disappointed not to score. I think mm. he just felt, I should have scored. It would have been a great moment for him to get back on the score sheet. And he, he's probably aware that Chances to play have been relatively few and far between. So mm. there is kind of a, a pressure there to take them when they do come up. Um, I, I wasn't that worried about it. I actually saw that as kind of a good sign. It, to me, that's a player who's hungry, you know, who, who wants to make an impact desperately. And I think that's going to be a more positive thing for him than negative moving forward. Yeah, I, I,
0: I agree. I agree. It's uh, It's just normal. Maybe... Uh, you know, he knows that when he gets those uh, those chances in the team, he's got to produce. And I think as well, when you've gone, as long as he has without a goal, uh, he would have been just dying to get himself off the mark. I don't think it's really connected to the Havertz thing at all. Um, no, I don't think it's got anything to do with that. Um, so hopefully he can take uh, the next chance that comes his way. Um, I did mention we had a few... Questions about Saka, etc. Um, oh, yes. So he got that kick in the 75th minute, and that can happen in a game. It can happen in training. He was defending. I think he got caught on the follow-through when a guy was taking a shot on goal. It was obviously sore, was limping around, and they took him off uh, pretty quickly to put Vieira on. But people were wondering, well, why is Bakayo Saka still on the pitch at that point? Um, Master John Bree on the Discord says, what do you think is behind Arteta's unwillingness to sub off his stars even when we're coasting? Is it about keeping rhythm and momentum or maybe a fear that taking say Saka off will lead to a Big momentum swing. Um, Eyeball Paul had another question along those lines. Saka's taking a kicking at the moment. Will Arteta's decision to wait till after he can no longer play to sub him off, come back to bite us? Earlier substitutions could see more game time for players on the fringes and protect players once game states are more comfortable. And I think, you know, if it's 2-0, I understand leaving Bukayo Saka on the pitch a bit more than I do at 3-0, for example.
1: Yeah. Uh, listen, I, I, I think um, I think it's certainly true that he could have been taken off earlier and probably should have been taken off earlier. We've got a big week coming up. We're going to say that a lot this season because of the Champions League. Um, and we're going to need Bukayo Saka. Um, I also, on the other hand, think it is probably true that there is a lot of kind of supporter anxiety around Saka and his well-being and his fitness that isn't necessarily justified because I do think to a certain extent, the numbers speak for themselves. He is an incredibly, and obviously I've touched wood as I say this, but he's an incredibly resilient, tough player who, because of the position he plays, because of the style of play he has, is going to get kicked. And week after week, he comes back Mm. and he plays. And of course, at some point, that won't be true. At some point, he'll pull a muscle or he'll, you know, something else might happen or a little ligament tweak or whatever it might be, and he'll miss a couple of games. But I would say with confidence, he you know, I would say it doesn't look like something that he's particularly vulnerable to and I think I think his resilience is kind of the untold story of all this amidst our anxiety amidst our concern he's a guy week after week fallbacks come and kick him and week after week he gets back up and comes back and starts the next game and I think we don't talk about that aspect of him as a player enough
0: I think that's a great point i think it's a great point um you know I mentioned in the first half that there is a I think there's a connection between Saka's goal scoring exploits and the manager's reluctance to like take him off. Mm-hmm. You know, 3-0 is good, but you know, 4-0 would be better, 5-0. Who knows how important goals might be towards the end of a season. Goal difference could be a factor, it could be an important factor. When you've got a player like that who can give you those moments, sometimes out of nothing. You know, you you lean into that and look, I'm not saying that he is Lionel Messi or Cristiano Ronaldo or I'm not saying that, but those are examples of players who produced such an enormous amount every time they went on the pitch or, or in every season, you know, in terms of their numbers and goals and assists and all the rest of it. But they also played 90 minutes every week, more or less, didn't they? you know, mm-hmm. uh, at the peak of their careers.
1: Mo Salah would be an example in the Premier mm. League. You know, Erling Haaland's only a year older than Saka. He's playing a lot of minutes in this Man City team and mm. it, it, going into a lot of duels, a lot of physical battles. Um, I, I totally get it. I mean, Saka did sit out the Carabao Cup game and that was absolutely the right thing. But I, I just think that um, it's natural for us to be protective, and worry about him. But I would say, look at the evidence, you know, look at the consistency with which he's actually able to play. This isn't Abu Dhabi. This isn't even an Aaron Ramsey or somebody like that. This is someone who uh, is very, very physically durable and seems completely able to cope with the challenges of being a top player in the Premier League and the Champions League thus far. Mm. Um, You know, a freak accident can always change that and can change a player's trajectory. But um, so far, so good. And I think maybe we need to trust a little bit more in the management and the physios and the club doctor and the people who are assessing Bakayo Saka. He's so important that I don't believe they would take big risks unnecessarily.
0: Okay. Well,
1: but you know, I might be wrong. And when he gets injured, people will tell me. I'll it's totally all sure, your fault, sure. yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it's all my fault. Your no fault that. for not taking um, him off. Blah, blah, blah. What about this one? And I have to say, this isn't my speciality, this area, but I thought it was an interesting question. Geezy peas. Uh, hang on. <laughs> hang on. It's apparently Jeezy peas. Oh, of course. Yes, it was pointed it was out. Corrected. It's geesy peas. rocked my a, world. To rhyme with cheesy peas um with all the talk about tickets in the right name collections and credit hoarding should the premier league minimum number of tickets for away fans be higher than 10 percent? say 2k regardless of capacity amazing scenes from the away end at bournemouth but a shame that only 1300 got to experience it god um
0: I mean, m- maybe there, there ought to be minimum ground capacities.
1: Well, that's a sort of separate point. I mean, ah. there's been talk and pressure upon Bournemouth to increase the capacity of their stadium for some time, mm. and yet it hasn't happened. I think I'm right in saying it's just over 11,000, which, yeah, can that be right? I mean, I that is so, yeah. very small. In Premier League terms, even in Championship terms, that would be a small ground. But if it was like
0: a flat number for every game, would that not mean fewer at some of the bigger grounds?
1: Potentially. I mean, another thing to consider is like the demand for home tickets at the Emirates Stadium is so great. Uh, Would we want to be in a position where potentially increasing Mm. away... Attendance. i mean i think away attendance is really important and i think bigger um, away attendance would probably improve the horrible phrase the product right when you when you're watching a game on television or even if you're in the ground it's the away ends you make a lot of the noise you know mm. um and when you get the cup games where sometimes away allocations are substantially bigger it does make for an amazing atmosphere Often at times,
0: yeah, that's true. That is true. Um, but like you say, the, the flip side of that is, you know, for for Arsenal at the moment, when demand for home tickets is so high, do you want to give more to to the opposition fans? Uh, but you I know, guess if, the answer is no. Let's say
1: we went with the suggestion of a two thousand capacity. I don't know how many away fans we permit at um, the Emirates Stadium, but I imagine it's at least that, if not more than that. So. It would increase the proportion at the smaller grounds, but mm. probably not affect the bigger grounds.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, they get the same 3,000, typical allocation of 3,000 is what I, a quick Google has told me. Okay. So 57 and 3 for your 60 uh, in terms of the capacity. So
1: I, I think the real onus here has to be on Bournemouth to kind of increase their capacity to meet Premier League expectations. Hmm. Um, I know that's easier said than done, right? Uh, these things aren't cheap or easy, but you know, it, I remember many incidents from the past where teams were promoted, let's say, from the non-league to the football league, but that promotion uh, was annulled effectively because yeah. their grounds didn't meet the requisite standards. Um, and maybe the Premier League should be a bit more exacting. You know, there should have to be more concrete steps taken to actually improve the capacity of the grounds. Mm. Um, as for like what's happening with the away tickets in terms of the right names, the collections, and the credit hoarding, uh, I need to look into that more because it's not so as I'm not a fan who's really part of the away scheme or who travels a lot. You know, if I go to the away game, it's nine times out of ten because I'm working there. I need to mm. study that more. But I gather there is quite a lot of frustration and unhappiness a- about some of the changes that have been made. Yeah,
0: I don't know enough about it to, um, to make any informed comment on that. Um, yeah. Like you, I'd have to look into it a bit more. Um, what about this then from uh, Lewis Lady? Who says, Goodly morning, gents. Theoretically, if Arsenal were awarded a penalty against City next Sunday, as if. Uh who would you choose to take it? So far this season it seems Saka is taking home penalties, meanwhile Odegaard is taking penalties away from home. And actually, we've had quite a few penalties this season already, haven't we?
1: We have. Yeah. We have. And those are helping uh, you know, fluff up some of the some of those stats for players that I talked about earlier on I mean on a similar theme James Ellis asked what do you make of our rotating penalty taker policy is it a clever innovation or perhaps a sign that we don't have a penalty specialist in our first choice 11 um, I I don't really have a
0: problem with it you know if you've got two good penalty takers I mean Robert Perez used to take some penalties for Arsenal um, you know wasn't it a thing that when Thierry Henry got fouled he wouldn't take the penalty and um, And Perez took a lot, you know, so I don't think it's a bad thing to have two players who are capable of scoring penalties and who feel confident about scoring penalties. And maybe, you know, we've got more than that in the squad, like Havertz, two penalties for Arsenal, the one the other day and the, the one in the community shield were both... They both had a conviction that maybe isn't quite there in his all-round game yet. So maybe there's another option. I know Jesus, Gabriel Jesus, doesn't have a great record from from the spot, but you know there are a few mm. players in this team who I would absolutely trust. Jorginho. Jorginho's a very good penalty taker. I suspect Trossard can take a decent penalty. Martinelli has taken a penalty or two in the past. you know. So yeah. maybe it's not a bad thing because goalkeepers do their homework, and the more they have to think about you know, if you're facing Erling Holland, yeah, okay. Uh, I think I know what he's gonna do here. He's gonna blast it and I just have to kinda guess the right way. Um, maybe he's got more craft to his penalties than than I've seen. But you know, if you've got to think about, okay, is it Saka, is it Odegaard, is it Jorginho, is it Havertz, I don't think it's a bad thing to have a bit more unpredictability, if you like. Um so yeah.
1: I completely agree. You know, you're right, goalkeepers do their homework on this stuff. Anything you can do to kind of outfox them is valuable. And as for the first question, if we get a penalty against Man City, I would want, I think Martin Odegaard on it. I think I find his the most convincing mm. of our penalty kicks uh, thus far this season.
0: I agree. But I suspect if we do, it'll be Saka. Because if it's a home soccer. game? Yeah. Do you think there's anything in there? I think there might be. I really? think there might be. I think he is the number one. Right. So I think if he's feeling it, you know, if he's at home and the crowd is up and we get a penalty, I think he'll take it. I mean, I think that's the way it is. I think Saka is the the nominal number 1 penalty taker, but we'll obviously have a conversation with with Odegaard about, you know, who's going
1: next. So Did he score one in this game last season? Uh, did he? I'm thinking of the 2-1 that we lost at home. No, he didn't. That score was a game. goal that was a, a real-life goal. Mm. Anyway, we shall see. I'll take it whether it's a penalty or not. Um, what about this question? Matt Taylor, probably not the old uh, Leicester fullback, says, Goodly morning, gents. Gabrielle's performances since he came back into the side have been close to faultless. Where do you rank him amongst the best defenders in the Premier League?
0: I mean, he's right up there. He's right up there. he uh, I mean, I think he and Saliba are a fantastic partnership, as we've said many times. This is a, a very, very good partnership. Um, I'm sort of, sort of repeating myself maybe a little bit here, but uh, I think his performances and the way he has slotted into the defense alongside Saliba... Kind of make the tactical explanation for his omission in the first three games of the season seem less believable than it did.
1: Yes, and, and <laughs> frankly, if 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 it truly was tactical, uh, I think we can probably conclude that was wrong. You know, like I think we've looked a much better side with Gabriel in it. Mm. For me, yeah. Um, I mean, and when was... I look at the sorry. Premier League, sorry, I just for saying when I look at the Premier League, I'd have him really high up there. You know. I think he's probably in that clutch of half a dozen central defenders who are the best mm-hmm. in the country at this present point in time. You know, you think of names like Diaz. Um, Van on Dijk. his day, still Van Dyke. Uh, it might seem ludicrous given his age, but on his day, Thiago Silva, I think is still exceptional. Um, but Saliba and Gabriel. Yeah,
0: we've got two uh, of them. up there. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, you didn't see the um, the Brentford game in full the other night, but he was like he was brilliant. I think he made nine clearances in total, Um, and Tommy Asu alongside him was was brilliant as well. You know, so yeah, intrigued
1: by that. I mean, Mm. you know, I think that's the first game Tommy Asu has started for us at centre back. Yeah, uh, as I've said before, I think there is a very decent chance that centre back is his best position. So. Curious to see if we see any more of that moving forward. Uh,
0: Declan Jasmine Basmati Rice on the Discord (laughs) says, who's under more pressure to beat Man City next weekend, the players or Arteta? For me, the players need to turn up and give us a mature performance and don't shoot themselves in the foot. Arteta will give them the keys to do that, but the pressure is on the players uh, to give it um, to City. Uh, I mean, does it work that way? Can it work that way? Do you think... Like, it's hard it is- to separate them,
1: isn't it? Yeah. I think. You know, there have been moments, I think, of... Um, oh, that Saka game where he scored against City, that was the season before, wasn't it? Of course, that's what I was just realised. Mm. There have been moments in some of the big Arsenal City games where... There have been individual mistakes from players that have really cost us. I mean, just singing Tommy Ass's praises, but his back pass that fell short of Aaron Ramsdale was a crucial moment um, in the 3-1 game last year. Um, I, I, I think uh, incidents like that have cost Arsenal pretty dear in these games. So I think Arteta will be looking for a, a clean, composed match at the very least. Mm. But I think it's sort of a shared responsibility among the group. I don't think it's fair to lump it on the players or lump it on the manager. I think they're absolutely in it together. But I think collectively, this is a hurdle they have to clear. They've got the, the boost of having won the Community Shield, albeit a game that they drew. Um, who knows? Mm. Could that give them what they need to get over the line? I don't see a way that Arsenal... I think if you, if, you, if you want to win the Premier League, you probably need to beat City at some point along the line. I think otherwise you're basically demanding perfection from yourself elsewhere. Um, and I think that's just almost too tall a task. I mean, is it sort of a
0: psychological barrier we have to break down or is it just simply a quality barrier? Is that kind of, you know, talking it up into something that it isn't? Like, the reason we haven't beaten Man City in a long time is because Man City have been the best team around for a long time. And, you know, for a good chunk of that, we've been nowhere near as good as we are now or nowhere near as capable. I think now the difference is people are expecting Arsenal to be able to push Manchester City, you know, not just over the course of a league season, but head-to-head, toe-to-toe. I'd be fascinated to see what way we approach this game, you know, you think about the community shield and the way we basically just let Manchester City have the ball. Yeah. But can we do that at home?
1: I don't know. You know there have been games at home against them where we've really gone after them. Um, my guess would be that we might be a bit more conservative this time, because I think that's sort of the kind of super narrative of Arsenal's season really Mm. can we evolve from this very excitable emotional exciting team into one who exhibit more maturity and control um and i don't think the city game will change that approach so i think it might be a bit more steady a bit more measured Mm -hmm. i think um i think there's a decent chance of a draw for that reason, because it's sort of like kind of suits everybody to an extent, um, but it would be fantastic to win it. And I do think there's a psychological component. I think it would be really valuable to us to do that. I think it would mean a lot to the group if they can clear this.
0: Hurdle. Yeah. It'll, it'll be interesting to see if the win in the community shield, albeit on penalties has had a, an effect. And we will, we'll never know, I guess. Whether we win or lose, um, I don't think we can measure that. But you know,
1: it's not going to hurt.
0: No, I think we can say with confidence. No, um, and hopefully we've got you know a, a full squad. Um, there's the game tomorrow night, of course. But you know, if you've got Martinelli back, if you've got Trossard back, uh, which looks likely, you know, you you would feel more confident at home. And I guess people will be looking for. For Mikel Arteta to get COVID and miss the game and have to watch it from a sitting room because that seemed to elicit the best performance we've ever put in against Manchester City. So a bit like you, uh, you know, hurting yourself in the aid of good wins. It's up to Mikel Arteta to go, um, you know, eat the air until you get COVID, I guess.
1: What about this one? Um Hailend Harula says, Goodly morning. I think I speak for a lot of Arsenal supporters when I write that as much as I'm pleased with our unbeaten start and recent run of Clean Sheets, there is the nagging fact that a certain hated rival is technically ahead of us in the table. They are like the fly buzzing around your table during a fine meal. Can you give us some comfort and detail how they will soon fall away? That their strong start is illusory and based on luck. And that they're simply enjoying a new manager bounce before it all collapses. Cheers in advance. Well, it's, it's Spurs. Sure, I mean that's
0: it's
1: pretty it is, much it. Well is like the history? A,
0: it's the history of the Tottenham. You know, yeah, that's exactly what it is. Um,
1: and, and you know, if you wanted to spin the result of the weekend, it they did require quite a long time of playing against a nine-man mm. Liverpool team to eventually and an own goal Mm. to eventually get the win
0: I think they have been a bit lucky you know even in our game they got lucky when look it was terrible from Jorginho but quite lucky for Spurs
1: it's a gift yeah
0: it's a gift gift. but ultimately
1: it's the history of the Tottenham
0: and that's all (laughs) we can that's all we can say on that matter
1: exactly put our faith in history repeating itself it's the history of the Tottenham
0: um do I have one more here? I'm not sure I do, actually. Um, there was a question about, we sort of mentioned it in the first half, a question about Martin Odegaard uh, from Vodka Martinelli uh, on the Discord uh, asking how impressed you've been uh, in terms of leadership, taking more charge on the pitch, giving Harrits the penalty. Um, there was a moment towards the end of the, the Brentford game or at the end of the Brentford game and Charles Sago Jr., who made his debut, was sort of pushed in front of the Arsenal fans by Martin Odegaard. And um, he just wanted to know how you uh, have been impressed by that aspect of
1: his captaincy, I guess. Thoroughly impressed. Um, What a signing he's been. Uh, I think, think, did you call him the perfect signing maybe in your blog the other Mm. day? Uh, Hard to argue with that, you know, to come into the club, quickly assume a leadership role, I think he's just a sensational player who's getting better all the time. Um, he's really taking on that as captain now. I think maybe the new contract just gives him that sort of added security and certainty and confidence in his position and in his status within the club. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, I think he's doing brilliantly. But I also think what's encouraging is I think he's got a great group around him as well i don't think it's a one-man band in terms of arsenal's leadership no you know we lost shaka but zinchenko jesus Bukayo saka um some of the more experienced players like jorginho declan rice potentially there are leaders all over the place uh gabrielle would be wrong not to mention um and I, and I think that is what's really encouraging. That Odegaard, I think, is proving to be a great captain. But a really good captain has some excellent sort of vices around him, and I think he's fortunate in that as well.
0: Yeah, I agree. I agree. It's a good bunch, and um, he really has, uh, like I've said before, he he has allowed allowed is wrong, but there's no. He doesn't have any kind of an inferiority complex, you know what I mean? Or he's not insecure about his role as captain in that other players step up and do their bit too, you know? Uh, and I thought, you know, that discussion, that was obviously a discussion that he and Jesus had, right? About the the Havertz penalty, you know, consult a senior player and make a decision on the pitch like that. Um, I think that's great. And the benefits hopefully will play out for us and obviously for, for Kai Havertz. Right, we had better leave it there. Get this podcast out for everyone to listen to. Um, like I said, join us on Patreon for an episode of The 30 Looking Back at All the Weekend's Premier League Action. We'll have that for you this afternoon. Uh, of course, there is a game in the Champions League against Lawns. I'm not sure at this point whether or not we'll have a preview podcast. There is a press conference this evening at around 6 p.m., so maybe we'll squeeze in uh, a preview podcast for you as well. Triple pod day. Uh, If you're a Patreon member, so uh, get on board uh, at patreon.com forward slash arsebog for now. We'll leave it there and we will catch
1: you on the next one. Bye-bye.
0: This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee and you'll feel it.